We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Joe Montana had that feeling. It was just inevitable that if he had the ball in the fourth quarter, his team was going to win. But it had never really had the Steelers in their target the way that he had in that game. This is Remember That Game, the podcast about sporting events that take you on a journey and maybe chart the path of the zeitgeist. I'm your host, Thomas Emmerich. This week, we have a throwback with Sigmund Bloom. Recorded this one back in 2020. You got Joe Montana and the Chiefs trying to execute a game-winning drive against Bill Cower and the 90 Steelers. So, enjoy. It's January 94, Steelers at Chiefs. And my guest, Football Guy's co-owner and podcast luminary, Sigmund Bloom. Welcome, Sigmund. It's good to be here, and it's good to have something to talk about with the Steelers for Chiefs fans this is a great moment uh, as they're at the precipice to revisit you know maybe over the last I don't know 40 years one of the high points of the franchise and it's all tangled up together uh, and that's what makes it great to look back on and then on the couch homage I'm going to reference some developments that I would assume if they occurred during the formative years of a young Steelers fan would be yeah. seminal moments in the development of fan psyche. Draw some parallels, perhaps, to some kindred spirits in the 90s experience with the Chiefs. And with each, I'll throw to you. With what clarity you remember the game, where you were, and how you felt relative to some other dramatic turns in a cower era of contenders. Starting with this game, the 93 playoffs, today's episode, when Eric Green scores to put the Steelers up seven and does the arrowhead chop in arrowhead. Right. When the Chiefs punt down to Rod Woodson at midfield, Chiefs down seven points with only three minutes left, and Joe Montana's fourth and goal touchdown versus the game into overtime. That sequence of events, how are you feeling, and what kind of effect did that have on you as a fan? Yeah, I mean, it was gutting in a way. So this is making it a little more personal, but I am you know, on the couch, Sigmund. <laughs> um, I was born in 1975, so... At the time that I was really developing my sports fan consciousness, the Steelers had already rampaged through the sports world, you know, a, a truly great dynasty, uh, the first great dynasty of the Super Bowl era, I think. And uh, and then we got to the lean years 
So, you know, I can remember so vividly the Steelers going to the AFC title game against Dan Marino. And again, everything intersects with Pittsburgh in some way. Uh, but it was still a very lean time. Uh, you know, Bubby Brister, Mark Malone at quarterback. There was the great upset of the hated Oilers in the playoffs during the beginning of the Rod Woodson era. And what should have been uh, an upset of Denver. Uh, but really, there wasn't a lot to celebrate. Then, you know, the Steelers had had, had one coach in my lifetime, uh, and that great uh, uh, Bill Cower hire. It was going to be either Bill Cower, Dave Wanstead, both Pittsburgh play, uh, coaches, both Pitt players. Um, and and Cower immediately turned the team around. Uh, the first year he was the coach, they had home field advantage and kicked off the playoff season by losing 24 to three to the bills at home. So that was a bit ignominious uh, and it was time to set things straight. But of course they were facing Joe Montana and you'll have to excuse me, Thomas, if I go on a little bit here, because Joe Montana is actually from the town, one town over from where I grew up. I grew up in Bentleyville, Pennsylvania, uh, and he grew up in Monongahela. He went to Ringgold. It was the next high school over from Bentworth, all these high schools, uh, you can imagine that cobble together four or five steel towns or coal towns or uh, uh, kids that live on rural roads. And, you know, Joe Montana had that feeling. It was just inevitable that if he had the ball in the fourth quarter, his team was going to win. Uh, but it had never really had the Steelers in their target the way that he had in that game. So it, w it was dreadful because the Steelers got out to a lead in that game. The Chiefs came all the way back, and the Chiefs were favorites in this one. It was in Kansas City. Uh, and at that point, the air went out of your sails. You thought the wind went out of your sails. The Steelers are going to lose this game. But then, you, like you mentioned, Eric Green, Neil O'Donnell, maybe they can do this. Uh, and this was a Steelers team, and this is going to sound familiar. They could play with anybody and beat anybody, and they could lose to the worst teams in the league. And they could play to their top or bottom in any one game. Then uh, when they have a chance, what was really devastating, what you didn't mention, was the punt block. Oh, yes. That the, that the Steelers had the ball, got the ball back with three minutes left. You know, the Chiefs had to punt from inside of their own 10. If the Steelers had just gotten a time, uh, first down or two, the game was over. Okay, they didn't get a first down. So they just had to punt Mark Royals, and he got the punt blocked. It was so reminiscent of the Joe – well, it wasn't reminiscent because it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, unless we're going to start getting into time travel, which we're kind of doing right now anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, it was reminiscent of uh, when you think of the, the dynamics of the Jerome Bettis fumble against Indianapolis. But, of course, that season ended in Bill Cowher's one Super Bowl victory. So it just – it never watching other teams. You know, I rooted for the Bengals in their Super Bowls, you know, and having that moment when you knew if Joe Montana had the ball with a chance to win, Joe Montana was going to win. The other thing that's really interesting about this is we think of this because we're on the precipice here. Let's bring it to present day, Thomas, uh, Tom Brady, Philip Rivers, right? The the second act. Eli Manning is making a graceful exit. But, you know, what's this last act going to be like? Joe Montana had a triumphant last act. Uh, and this was part of it, but the Steelers, the gods let them off the hook they, a few times. So the punt block happens, they, the Chiefs get the ball, I think, at the two, and the Steelers actually hold them on the first three plays and get a fourth and goal at the seven. Maybe they're going to win. 
No. Then the Steelers still have the ball with, a, I think, about a minute 48 left. Three and out. Now you're giving the ball back to Joe Montana with a minute left. Of course, Joe Montana drives them down the field. I think Nick Lowry had a chip shot to win the game at the end of regulation. Missed. Again, the Mike Vanderjack uh, parallel there. Uh, but eventually, the teams played to stalemate in overtime, and Joe Montana did get that drive in there. Uh, you know, but it was just, I think that it's a, in a long string, Thomas, of Bill Cower teams underachieving or, or not playing up to their potential. And it took them a while to get over the hump and just get to the Super Bowl. That brings up Neil O'Donnell again. Like you said, neuroses. Uh, but I'm sure for you know a Chiefs fan, it's an entirely different story. But I, I just remember I was at my dad's house in Albuquerque, New Mexico, watching that game with him. He is a lifelong Steelers fan who you know, used to uh, see Pirates games at Forbes Field and things like that. Uh, and it was just it, it was just terrible to be at the other end of the scope uh, of that Joe Montana lethal fourth quarter drive uh, and the Steelers finding ways to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Both kindred spirit teams in the 90s. Chiefs get the better of this one. The Steelers would get their payoff way before the Chiefs, hopefully sometime uh, soon, especially in, in the Pat Mahomes era, an early championship would be great. But the Steelers would go through a few more, and, and you referenced some of the data points along the way. But yeah, I'm going to jump to 1994. Yeah. Where you were when Neil O'Donnell checks down to Barry Foster at the goal line, AFC title. Chargers are right on it. Steelers lose at home to Stan Humphreys and the gang. Yeah, well, look, this is going to get – you're really going to get deep into the neuroses now. Oh, yeah. Because at this point, I'm, I'm in college, okay? And if people might not know this, depending on how old they are, but until the early 2000s, regular people could go to the Super Bowl for not – an ex- you didn't have to mortgage your house. In that game – uh, so th- that was one of three AFC championship games that the Steelers lost that I had plans in place with various family members that if the Steelers were going to the Super Bowl. We had hotel reservations and everything set up. We were going to go watch the Steelers in the Super Bowl. And it was Alfred Papunu. It was John Elway. It was Troy Brown and any number of cast of characters, Drew Bledsoe. Uh, you know, these were all games you could got it. The. The Patriots Super Bowl that year, when the Patriots went, you could have came down to New Orleans and got a ticket to that game for a hundred dollars. Oh. Uh, I mean, that's inflation adjusted, probably it's still not much more than a hundred dollars. My point is that it was it was gutting because it was a personal loss on a level too. But the Steelers just seemed to find a way. Look, even the one time they made the Super Bowl against the Cowboys uh, during this stretch, it's still the Jim Harbaugh. Hail Mary by the Colts, who the Steelers were vastly superior to, harmlessly fell to the turf for a second, though. You felt it again, like not again, yeah, not again. And uh, that's why uh, it was was like voodoo or something. I'm down here in New Orleans. I'm thinking about this, Thomas. It's like voodoo or something that the one year they did make the Super Bowl and went under Cower, it started out like that was the Bengals year. Speaking of the Bengals, that was their year. And then on that play, that one, and what's odd here, to, to, to draw some of this stuff together, so in the um, in that game, Carson Palmer had that one for one for 66 line. And in the game we started off with, the Steelers-Chiefs game, Dave Craig had a one yep. for one for 23 and a touchdown line, because the Steelers actually knocked uh, Joe Montana out of the game briefly. And then two games later, the 
Chiefs made the AFC title game that year against the Bills, and Montana got knocked out of that game, and that was pretty much the end of their chances. So, yeah, it's just a, it is about neuroses, and I'm glad you use that word because I talk about it all the time. And I understand if people hate Steelers fans because the Steelers, you know, being a Steelers fan has been a lot of fun, despite those lean years when I was growing up. And yet we still define this stuff often by the failures instead of the successes. I feel like a lot of people, uh, especially younger, don't understand why the neuroses with Steelers fans. And it's because they, they didn't live through that 90s. If you live through just the toward the tail end of the Cower era and with Tomlin, you're like, oh, you're, you're winning a couple of Super Bowls. You're a contender every year. What's to be neurotic about? But then you actually dive into uh, everything that happened in the 90s. And it makes total sense. Jumping next to that 95 Super Bowl, how confident did you feel going into that? And just because I'm unrelenting, where were you exactly for yeah. the O'Donnell pick near the end? I was with my uh, first freshman year college roommate, Drew Albenzi from Indiana, PA. Uh, great guitar player. Um and his place, we all gathered there. All it was, I was a Syracuse University student. By the way, is this an aside? Because I'm just gonna make the Steelers, 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 Steelers. What, yeah. Thomas, what's your, what are your rooting interests? Do you have a, is your heart with any one NFL team? The New York Giants, oh. and I, I kind of came to you know, attention with football right after Purcells left. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was just a lot of, okay, the Giants are just a bad team every year. I don't even remember them being good. Then they had that year with Danny Cannell. I remember that the first time I was like feeling so much joy every week watching the Giants. And it was just this team that like kind of had a good schedule, scraped out a wild card home game. I was so excited to watch it. And then they blow a two-score lead late in the fourth quarter to Randall Cunningham and the Vikings. And I remember that being the first time as a kid I was absolutely devastated about a sporting event but i can't complain about what's happened you know during the eli era at this point you know right. i eventually got that payoff uh with the with the burris catch in the corner of the mm-hmm. end zone and then you know brady chucking those hail marys that just missed randy moss and, and look th- this was this is a perfect segue right when you bring up that that pittsburgh dallas super bowl and i'm sorry chiefs fans that are tuning in uh, you know, hopefully you'll do another version of the show with a, a lifelong Chiefs fan. Um, oh, and I'll, look, I'll get some Chiefs stuff in here, too. I'm going to weave it in. Yeah. And and, and look, I, I just want to say as a quick aside, going back to that original game, I got to mention that Joe Montana, who in San Francisco fans, uh, you know, the Joe Montana Bowl um, said, you know, that there was no better crowd than Kansas City and that the that they told him that the roar of that crowd was going to move him. He's like, yeah, I've, I've been, I've played some pretty big games. I know what a roar of a crowd is, but he said it even moved him to play in front of that crowd and play for those fans. <sighs> oh, and, and one aside, there's a, yeah. a story. I, I, I read it and then I had a double check because uh, I could not believe it. And then I think it was on the Kansas City Chiefs website that, in 1990, there's a game where John Elway complained to the refs that the crowd noise was too loud. The refs were allowed to warn the crowd that the yeah. Chiefs will get a penalty, get a if, penalty. They, if they don't quiet down. And then they didn't quiet down, and the refs said, I'm not dealing with this, John. You're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, that's absurd. I mean, I can't even imagine how today's generation would react to the idea that a crowd could get a penalty. I mean, that's the whole thing about – that's one of the great things about football, right? It's the opposite of the country club sports, tennis and golf. Shh, they're about to, to take their shot. Everybody has to be quiet. You know, in football, you're you're there to rattle your opponent psychologically, emotionally. So anyway, so I'm going to tie this together, your Giants fandom and my Steelers fandom, because – 
the truly great thing, and this is where I, there's a couple of Titans fans on staff. We just had our football guys retreat in Las Vegas, Daniel Simpkins and, and Keith Roberts, lifelong Titans fans. And, well, what is there really to hang your hat on as a Titans fan? I mean, one yard short, the Music City Miracle. Uh, but as I like to uh, phrase it, Thomas, they blew up the Death Star this year. And yeah. the, the Patriots, by the time the Giants beat them in those two Super Bowls were the Death Star, right? They were the heel in wrestling terms that everybody rooted against. And that was the Cowboys in that Super Bowl against the Steelers. And the Steelers were the underdog, truly the underdog in a way that if folks, if you take yourself back to watching that game, the Cowboys were just a team like a, like, you know, the house in blackjack you know, just, just this uh, irresistible force with these massive offensive linemen just chewing up the field. And the Steelers had this defense. Remember, you got to remember, and this even goes back to that chiefs Steelers game that we started off with. The Steelers had, I know I'm down here in new Orleans. So I got to make a nod to the dome patrol. If we're going to talk about it, the greatest like set of four linebackers, but look, that, that Steelers team had Greg Lloyd, Kevin green, Chad Brown and LaVon Kirkland was still on the team for that game against the Chiefs. So the Steelers had their own identity and defense, but the Cowboys were just running them over early in that game. And it looked like the Steelers were overmatched. And you had it uncharacteristic at that time because Bill Cowher just went into a shell. So many times the Steelers lost in the playoffs because he just went into a shell. In that game, you know, we had the Norm Johnson onside kick, the surprise onside kick in the Super Bowl. And you could feel it, Thomas, not just for Steelers fans, but for everybody around the country that wasn't a Cowboys fan, just like everybody around the country who wasn't a Patriots fan, rallying behind this team. Let's do this. Let, let's see the heel fall. Let's see the, David land that shot and knock down Goliath. And they made the stop. They got the ball back. It, it felt like this was going to be one of the great stories penned in Super Bowl lore. And, of course, every Steelers-Cowboys Super Bowl has been great and memorable. And instead, we're left with this feeling like there's a glitch in the matrix. You know, that's In some ways, it's interesting, Thomas, we could go off on a whole other tangent here, of the way that we make up stories to explain things that we don't understand. This is why Steelers fans immediately went to this idea that Neil O'Donnell threw the Super Bowl. Right. He didn't throw the Super Bowl. OK, it may not even have been his fault. It may be on the receiver, but it just felt so unjust, so impossible to digest. You know, this is why Jaguars fans right now have all these conspiracy theories about the team moving to London, because when you're watching something and you just emotionally, psychologically can't digest it, you have to come up with some other story to be able to live with it. And that's what we have to do. We just have to live with that game. The throw, just the optics on it, it, it seemed like something was just so off and maybe we were more inclined to blame on the quarterback since the ball ends up being caught by the defender so far from the receiver. Do you think that unfairly shaped uh, O'Donnell's legacy with the Steelers and Steelers fans? Yeah, I'm sure it, it did because it, before that, we would look at Neil O'Donnell rescuing us from the Bubby Brister, Mark Malone era uh and after that and i think that it was ranked a few years ago i want to say usa today did a countdown of the biggest blunders in super bowl history it was number one and which is you know it's it's on the short list so it's not fair but at the same time you know thomas this gets into a larger human idea and in the super bowl it, it is this 
larger than life spectacle that does define careers, right? Eli Manning, let's take it back to the Giants. And is he going to make the Hall of Fame or not? The only reason that's even a question is because Eli Manning played the best football of his career in the most important games. And, you know, some of us, uh, as we go through our lives, you know, there are things that we remember or define our lives by. Um, and, you know, we, then on the other hand, we have something like the Kobe Bryant story, you know, may you rest in peace and his daughter and everybody else on the helicopter. And the idea of how uh, the story is always being written and no matter what happens, you can continue to change your legacy, change the way you're thought of. Uh, but certainly when it, Super Bowls represent this idea of like a culmination of your life, a culmination of everything that you've been working for. And that's why we always remember what uh, players did in the Super Bowl first and foremost. Neil O'Donnell in this, uh, we can bounce back and forth. So many through lines back to this uh, Chief Steelers games in, in 93. O'Donnell's playing really well. At one point, yes. late in the game, he was 7 for 11 on you know, third downs for like well over 100 yards. His numbers actually ended up being better than Montana, just looking at you know yards per attempt. And you know, his rating was a hair better than Montana's. And then O'Donnell was victim of a drop uh, on one of the late Steelers drives that could have helped put the game away, uh, a drop that would have picked up the first. And I, he played a good game on the road, you know, 20-degree weather in Arrowhead. Absolutely. He was the reason the Steelers had a chance to win that game. Again, they were uh, over a touchdown underdogs in that game against Joe Montana. Uh, and... It was him lifting. I mean, Eric Green, the tight end, was the number one receiver on that team. Um, you know, they had Jeff Graham and Ernie Mills who made some plays. But O'Donnell was the reason they were able to hang in that game. And he was absolutely let down by his receivers. It is, even that great Steelers defense had to rely on their nose tackle, Gerald Williams, who had made one of the, that sack that, that seemed to give them a chance to clinch the game. So O'Donnell was part of lifting that team out of the malaise of the eighties, but then expectations. So this is another thing that happens with teams. This is such an interesting dynamic to watch Thomas. And I think that being a giants fan, it's almost a relief because now that there are no expectations, they can focus on the program. Joe judge can install the program, be patient. Uh, and you know, kind of what's going to happen in, the Carolina with the Panthers also. But then once you get that, and this is I mentioned the Jags, once you get that taste of success, whether it's the players, whether it's the ownership, whether it's the fan base, now expectations are raised. And I think the Browns this year are a terrific example of how a team can be in one mindset and one mode when they have low expectations, but when they feel those expectations coming externally, coming internally, it's another psychological test. And that's what makes this year's Chiefs team so much fun because, man, I don't think there's anything that could rattle Patrick Mahomes. I don't think there's any expectation or any uh, ideals that he could be expected to meet that would be imposing for him. And, and that's one of the things that's really fun to watch about this Chiefs team. And I think that Joe Montana being on that Chiefs team and, and Marcus Allen, right? So they got Joe Montana and they got Marcus Allen. And, and they installed the West Coast offense with Paul Hackett, another Pitt connection there, Pittsburgh connection. And they were going to make a team that had a legitimate chance to get back to the Super But they hadn't won the division in like 20 years, right? Uh, something like that. And, and instantly they turned it around too. So um, I think you picked an excellent game 
to put under the microscope and see how all these stories intersect. And a cruel turn of events, you know, the Chiefs, for the first six years of the Super Bowl era, they make the playoffs, they reach two Super Bowls, win one. 1972, you know, they open Arrowhead Stadium, and then they go on to not get a home playoff game for like 30 years. Right. And then they finally get one the year prior to this, hosting the Raiders, who had decided to start Todd Marinovich just in time for the playoffs. They benefit from six turnovers, win a 10-6 game to finally like break that spell. And this is the next home game they get. And just I, I watched the game back on YouTube. It gave me the kind of vibe I, I felt when I watched the Chiefs host the Titans a couple weeks ago, just the energy in the stadium. Yeah, it's a tremendous fan base, and it's certainly a team that's been through a lot. And if the success of this Chiefs team stands for anything, it is not settling for quarterback purgatory. And also, uh, thinking big, Andy Reid, uh, you know, the Chiefs trading up for Patrick Mahomes, because the team was in fine shape. A lot of fan bases, a lot of owners would probably be satisfied, even though the team was underachieving with Alex Smith. And they uh, you don't see that often in today's NFL where a team is winning making the playoffs their quarterback is successful by any metrics or any numeric measures but i think around the building they know we can get better and they put in a long-term plan that really ended up being a short-term plan because Patrick Mahomes is so precocious and i think that's something that's really interesting uh Thomas that leads into this story this is the most exciting quarterback offseason I can remember so many teams are at these forks in the road about what they're going to do about the quarterback position. And don't tell me quarterbacks wins are not a quarterback statistic, right? We're talking about Joe Montana. We're talking about Neil O'Donnell, um, Patrick Mahomes, you know, these decisions will alter the course of these franchises, the destiny of coaches, the destiny of other players. And we're going to see, where these teams are on their current quarterbacks, on the quarterbacks that are out there, on the quarterbacks in the draft. There's a lot of possibilities. It's very exciting. The rest of the Chiefs era, you kind of lean on like Steve Bono and right. other quarterbacks. And then with the Steelers, you kind of go with you know, good, but like purgatory with Cordell Stewart. Right. And eventually Steelers get over the hump with Roethlisberger and company in a more pass uh, centric offense and now and now, you know Chiefs kind of move from Alex Smith and decide they're going to move on to kind of raising that ceiling potentially at a higher risk with uh, Pat Mahomes. How much do, does breaking through go to lifting the ceiling and expanding the range of outcomes like the Steelers did in 95? Like maybe the Chiefs tried to do in the early 90s before but Montana just happened to get hurt in the AFC title and unlike the Chiefs did in the late 90s. Yeah, I think that Absolutely. And we can see this in game management. Again, I've gotten some questions in radio spots this week, Thomas, about the coaching edge that Kyle Shanahan will have over Andy Reid. But Patrick Mahomes makes Andy Reid's game management blind spots not even matter, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine a Super Bowl and watch this be what happens now that I'm saying it. It's hard to imagine a Super Bowl where an Andy Reid mistake about timeouts or clock management matters is the difference in the game. Because either we've seen it in the AFC side of the bracket, either Patrick Mahomes is so good that it doesn't matter uh, or, well, I don't know what the or is. I mean, last year, the Patriots held him down for a half and, you know, it was just 
a few things that didn't go the Chiefs' way you know, over time, Chris Jones getting hurt and things like that. But I do think you can see it, it, it goes to the macro and how the franchise is run and the decisions for the franchise to the micro, to the decisions in the game, you know, playing not to lose, coaching to not lose versus coaching to win. And in the case of the Steelers and Roethlisberger, it was just luck that they got Roethlisberger. It just happened that they were picking 11th that year. It was their first down year in a while. Uh, and every team between – and this was before – so this is an interesting thing to look back. It was, what, 2004? We're kind of at the turning of an era here, right? Eli's retiring. Rivers isn't going to play for the Chargers. And, well, Roethlisberger will be back. But the Steelers, uh, in that era, teams didn't gre- aggressively trade up, right? Because what are we going to be talking about for the next few months, Thomas? Like, who's going to trade up for, well, is it Tua or Herbert? You know, is Jordan Love going to come up the board? This idea that you have to get up the board to get your quarterback. Well, that wasn't the case then. And if it was, maybe the Steelers wouldn't have had Roethlisberger. He was the clear number three prospect and not considered that far below Manning and Rivers in that class. However, he was an underclassman. Can you believe that 15 years ago, an under being an underclassman was a death knell for a quarterback? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's I mean, different era. Vic, it's weird, right? It was Michael Vick, and that was about it. For under uh, quarterbacks who came out as underclassmen, and this is where the parcels, how many games have you started and won and things like that. This is why this was a big belief around the league. And underclassmen just didn't have a chance to bake in the oven for as long as quarterbacks who came out of seniors. So I remember, I think Jacksonville had Leftwich, Atlanta had Vick, uh, Houston had Carr. All of these teams picking right in front of the Steelers already had their quarterback. And Roethlisberger fell into their lap, and he ended up being Roethlisberger. Uh, but I do – so I don't think I would chalk that up to any visionary um, – you know, the year before they traded up for Troy Polamalu. Now, that was a visionary move yeah. uh, as, as he's about to – I think all – we can say he's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame this year. Uh, it's going to be a fun time for Steelers fans in Canton this year. Anyway, uh, I, I think that, you know, again, thinking about this in terms of where the, a lot of these other franchises are right now at the crossroads with their quarterback, it is a, a good time to remember that fortune favors the bold. That's what they say, right? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I feel like there's like a you know, comparative importance in, you know, around the Steelers in 2004, they go from Tim Lewis, a defensive coordinator who hadn't done a bad job, to Dick LeBeau, who's among the, you know, the GOATs. Um, and then the, the Chiefs, uh, this year go from you know Bob Sutton where you see the the flaws in the Patriots loss and you know, they're motioning Edelman inside in the AFC title last year to now going to Steve Spagnuolo how, how big do you think those coordinator changes were in kind of getting the Steelers over the hump of winning Super Bowl and getting the Chiefs over the hump of finally reaching Super Bowl for the first time in several decades yeah, this is a, a great point, and it's, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about head coach hires and maybe even how they put together their staffs, but also these coordinator changes. You know, Greg Roman uh, in Baltimore last offseason, for instance, you know, they, they can be a very much a harbinger of, of big changes coming. When I think of the Steelers from those years, you're right to bring up Dick LeBeau, and you know, we, Dick LeBeau we can think of kind of in concert with Kyle Shanahan. Right. Because Kittle was saying every week it's like a new playbook. It's exciting. Something interesting here. I think Bill Belichick grasps this. He said it's exciting to learn new plays every week. It's exciting that the similarities are there, but it's the differences every week that make it exciting that Kyle Shanahan is drawing up plays just for that week. And of course, being down here in New Orleans, that incredible shootout between the Saints and the 49ers, you know, there were plays that he had in his back pocket for specific game situations that he pulled out that they, it was the, biggest play of the game was a blind pass where neither the receiver or the quarterback could see each other when the pass was made. I mean, that that's just incredible. And I think what Dick LeBeau did back then with the zone blitz was every week draw blitzes that the quarterback had never seen. Uh, and it's exciting. I think it's engaging. I think that you look at coaches that stay in their lane too much and they don't trust their players. Again, we can go back to the Super Bowl last year and the Patriots and the Rams and how when they went to those the spread out of the 22 personnel, they had to barely practice that all year. But Josh McDaniels had a good idea that that was going to be a key to, to penetrating, down, getting down the field against Wade Phillips' defense. So Le, I think of LeBeau and I think of Kyle Shanahan as those coaches that are bold enough to trust his players to do the things that he's seeing. But I also want to bring up Ken Wisenhunt because in the year, when they finally got over the hump in the Super Bowl, I remember watching the playoffs that year. It was the year of, the, of course, that amazing game against the Colts. It was the year of the, the Carson Palmer injury that I brought up. And it, I had to rub my eyes when I saw the Steelers passing on first down. Oh, my. Bill Cowher's actually trusting his offensive coordinator and letting delegating, right? Like actually trusting and delegating. I think that's one of the challenges for a lot of these new head coaches uh, and perhaps something that doomed Freddie Kitchens, who is going to be part of your giant staff now, right? Um, maybe take over for, for Jason Garrett next year when Garrett's hired somewhere else. Uh, so I think that these are things that are important, delegating, 
I think this with Steve Spagnuolo, it isn't the offense dragging the defense through the playoffs now. And let's also mention Tyron Matthew. I think that's a player. I mean, he's a spirit animal, right? I mean, he's he, Richard Sherman is a good example of this too, where there's a, what a player can contribute to a unit on the field and schematically, but there's also the behind the scenes cohesiveness of a team, that kind of mass consciousness that uh, 11 football players share and how, you know, maybe it was Eric Berry before who I heard he might be coming back, which would be great. Um, But the chiefs didn't really have a signature player on defense last year. They have that guy now. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's Matthew who makes a play at an important juncture of this game. And, uh, you know, just, all of these things, right? Uh, I like to talk, you know, fantasy football is, of course, front and foremost in a lot of the analysis I do just because of of my employer. Hey, whatever pays the bills. Um, But when I win a fantasy football championship, I like to look at the players that were in my starting lineup and trace it back to how did I get this player? You know, did I trade for him? Did I pick him up off of the waiver wire? Did I draft him? Why did I draft him? When did I decide I wanted that player in my fantasy leagues? When we look at a Super Bowl team and how all of those pieces were put together, how the coaches the paths it's just as interesting and in some ways just as unlikely or improbable yeah and players in the starting lineup making a difference on defense and the chiefs in this game when they needed to stop on third down to get montana the ball back you know right before the block punt down seven Derek thomas rest in peace who had missed a significant portion of the second half with an injury was there in that third down pressures neil o'donnell into the incompletion um, on first and second down, back in 93, Cower plays it a little different than he does in 2005 as far as being aggressive on first and second down. In this game, first down, run for minus four. Second and 14, another run. So they're in third and 10 trying to close it out. Um, they got rid of two timeouts, but Montana is still getting the ball back. Yeah, and it's a good moment, too, to mention. I think the running back there was Leroy Thompson, Yep. Penn State product uh six rounder 25 carries for 60 yards in the game so it was really o'donnell that he was keeping them in that game uh and so we want to you know give him the credit he deserves for getting the steelers to that point only to be part of the story of of letting them down but i I think this is a a, you know and i've just of course i'm going to speak on what i remember so personally but i think it's a, a great game to revisit for the Chiefs, uh, and I think the the parallel you drew between having the boldness to go out and trade for Joe Montana and having the boldness to trade up for Patrick Mahomes have been great turning points. And I may be showing my colors here if I say I'll be rooting for the Chiefs to get that first uh, Super Bowl uh, in in this one, well, first Super Bowl in a long time in this one. Yeah, it's hard not to root for Reed and Mahomes just naturally is uh just watching them playing and enjoying it so much the last couple of years even though cal shanahan has been really fun to root for over the years too and they have a lot of cool players love richard german in this game yeah, talk about aggression uh, in the schottenheimer era you have kind of the uh bizarro version of this game when he doesn't have joe montana he has steve bono against the colts they lose that heartbreaking game the divisional round at home at one point at the end of the half they kick the field goal on third down in the red zone when they had 13 seconds left could have taken another shot at the end zone but it was a team that wasn't uh, leaning as much and as confidently on, on their quarterback as they did with joe montana in this game when the chiefs push into field goal range near the end they don't run it at least throughout 
They put the ball in the hands of Joe Montana on a third and long. He rolls out, throws at Rod Woodson, the defensive player of the year, for the completion. It feels like a bizarro Schottenheimer and compared to what you'd see later with the Chiefs. And at this point in Chiefs history, it seemed like Schottenheimer could could do almost no wrong. It's interesting, like with the Steelers, you see Cower more conservative early on. I wonder if the team's pass could have been different if Schottenheimer doesn't or temporarily retire in 98. And maybe maybe he has that redemption the way uh, Cower ended up having. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that, of course, Cower worked for Schottenheimer uh, in Cleveland. And Cowher also almost became the Cincinnati head coach before this, right? It, it, again, when I think of the quarterback uh, decisions, and I, I think of it, Thomas, in terms of alternate universes coming in and out of existence, right? Like there's an NFL alternate universe where Bill Cowher replaces Sam White. And of course, this is Bill Cowher's uh, Hall of Fame year. We got to mention that. Um, all of these things, NFL so incestuous, you know, we, the nepotism, we just got uh, what Zimmer's kids now as a co-defensive coordinator. Um, so, yeah, there's all these tangled up things. And I do think that while we'll never get to see Marty Schottenheimer, I don't think win a Super Bowl. Um, if we were to have a short list discussion of the greatest coaches to never win a Super Bowl, Marty Schottenheimer would immediately be in that conversation, as would Andy Reid. And again, the connection here is, as you mentioned, because he had Joe Montana, Marty Schottenheimer didn't put his fingerprints on the management of this game. He handed it over to Joe Montana. And I think that's what Reed has successfully done with Mahomes. Uh, and th- just as a quick aside, I, you sense that the players, the Kansas City players, really love Reed. Um, this is not to take anything away from the relationship that Kyle Shanahan has with his players remember he and chris sims famously have like tattoos of each other on on their calves or something right so (laughs) but it's like a little awkward to even bring that up right anyway whatever yeah whatever helps them bond well you know it's it's intense it's an intense emotional thing coach and player but you really see that it's it there's love there's a light-hearted sense even though football and we're seeing what's other thing that's interesting got to get at these points in and look patriots fans you've got all your rings you've got your 20 years of dominance so let us all enjoy the schadenfreude a little bit here that you're seeing i think we've seen mike pennell say it we've seen richard sherman say it indirectly because he was talking about the lions but he was still talking about the patriots way that you know and we famously had the eagles talk about oh, i, I want to have fun who was it was it lane johnson i think that said i want to have fun with my teammates i'd rather win one super bowl like having fun than five um, with this dreadful feeling hanging over everybody. And you feel that lightness in, in Kansas city. And I'm not saying San Francisco is a dreadful team, that a team that's workman like about it. Uh, but it, it's another reason that you, you feel, you know, that with this team right at the precipice uh, that for Andy Reed, I think if anything causes the chiefs to get tight in this game, it might be because the players want to win it so badly for their coach. Yep. And the, the last time the Chiefs won two playoff games in a season was here in 93 and yeah 93 they put in the hands of Montana to close it out this year they say hey Mahomes go go deep to McCole Hardman let's let's see what happens with the ball in your hands and and now now that the precipice um I like to jump into a quiz game in this show and it has they always have a through line 
And I, I, I can never tell if I should start with the annoyingly hard one or the easy one. But maybe I'll start with the annoyingly hard one. And it's all related to uh, the game here. Which running back briefly gave the Bill Parcells Patriots their only lead in a wild card loss to Bill Belichick's Browns? Oh, wow. Jeez. You want me to give it? Yeah, I mean, I, I I should at least like have a guess to do something credible. Like, um, it's it's under your nose, and that, that's why it's a, these are annoyingly almost trollish trivia questions. So it's running back to give the Browns his touchdown gave the the Patriots with the Bill Patriots. Parcells a brief lead when Parcells went and faced Bill Belichick's Browns in the playoffs. Antoine Smith, Leroy Thompson, Leroy Thompson, oh. Wow, that's right, because he went to the Patriots the next year. That's they traded right. him. Yeah, they had that quite the crowded backfield uh, right. in the 90s uh, and under Cower uh, sequence of really successful runners. It, so yeah, they traded him before the 94 season. In 1993, uh, the, the season where the, the Steelers uh, faced the Chiefs in the wild card here, which running back won the Doak Walker Award as a top college back that season? Which, which I'm sorry, which, which oh, season? Oh, sorry, in, in 93. Oh, um, there's a through line between all these. Right, right, right. Um, I don't know. Bam Morris. I was going to say Bam Morris, but I thought, was he that successful in college? Wow. Because, oh, wow. Yeah. So this is great. It's amazing how how intricately intertwined all this is. Wow. Which running back won both Offensive Rookie of the Year and uh, a first-team All-Pro spot that season, 1993. Oh, wow. 93. Rook, who would have been a rookie that year, though? Um, see, this is like my brain is just like the wind is blowing through. So I'm not... I'm, I'm He's a very here. large running back. Um, um, Christian Okoye? Jerome Bettis. Jerome Bettis. Oh, wait, wait. What am I saying? Christian Okoye. Jerome Bettis playing for the Rams. Yeah. Wow, and this is all part of that chain of running backs. My my brain is is uh, uh, failing me, but this is what happens when you get older. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I I, I like to yeah with each guess I, I slip it right in the middle of the game and I make them trollishly difficult but fun. I hope. Oh, absolutely <laughs> fun. No. Um, which running back fouled up a 92 breakup where he tied Eric Dickerson's record for 100 yard games in a season with an injury plagued 93 campaign? And he would not make it to the playoffs. Wow. 93, not making it to the playoffs. I was going to say, so that would rule out somebody like Rodney Hampton or Thurman Thomas. Oh. This team's running game would suffer. Um, uh, Daryl Thompson. Barry Foster. Oh, Barry, okay, so Boston. Right, right. Because Foster, this was why we had Leroy Thompson in the playoff game, of course. Yeah, and which of those Steelers running backs did you have the most fondness for uh, growing up? Well, of course, you know, we had – when I think of the Steelers running backs, I – and when I say – it's funny. One of the things that will make me smile, I'll say rest in peace, buddy Ryan, when I say this, um, was I liked Ernest Jackson. I liked him because of the – because of 
he was a true lunch pail guy. I think Buddy Ryan famously said, I'll trade him for a six pack. It doesn't even have to be a cold six pack. And, uh, um, but of course, Merrill Hodge, uh, because Merrill Hodge was symbolic of the overachieving when the Steelers did have success during that era. But remember, this is also Steelers team. Boy, the analytics folks would hate this because the Steelers throw a high pick after Walter Abercrombie during the 80s. Yeah, different era. Right. They throw a high pick after Tim Worley. I mean, these were just, if you're saying who exactly, it's part of the reason the Steelers struggled in the 80s. We get more data, or there's a way to get the same, close to the same kind of understanding of production before a lot of the pass-friendly rules go into effect. I'm sure the running game and the running back itself probably has a larger part of the, uh, you know, the the equation for who wins and loses back here in the 90s. And the Steelers, yeah, had a string of them that were very successful, but for shorter periods of time. In this game, you have a, a coaching tree especially defensive guys in an era where, yeah, defense, you know, it's still important now, but even a bigger part of the equation back then. Cowerhead you know, used to be with Schottenheimer. He had the Steelers, Dom Capers, Marvin Lewis, Dick LeBeau on that staff. Schottenheimer had Dungey the previous season. He had Herm Edwards on this staff. Uh, between these two big branches of, you know, the NFL coaching trees, can you think of anything that was, any that was more influential for how defense will be played for the next 15 years? No, and I think that certainly when we look at the Steelers and, and again, like zone blitzing and the 3-4, you know, that was the thing. In some ways, the Steelers had an advantage like Seattle had uh, a few years back where, you know, Seattle was the team looking for those long corners uh, that maybe didn't have the quickness or straight line speed but fit so well in their scheme, and they were able to just harvest these guys, including Richard Sherman. The Steelers, because they were playing a 3-4 defense, one of the few teams doing it, were able to get those tweeners, those players that uh, didn't quite fit uh, or even take a player like Kevin Green later in his career. So absolutely, uh, we see the the fingerprints of that as you know, we briefly uh, went into more of a 3-4 era. But now, Thomas, we've graduated to a time, and I can remember when my colleague Gene Bramwell was saying this probably about 10 years ago, that sub packages, that the nickel defense was going to be the base defense and that more teams are going to play 15, 16, 17 players on defense in any given game. Uh, and I, I think it's changed the way we think about the game. And as we go into the draft, it changes the way they evaluate players. It's going to be interesting to see how Isaiah Simmons you know, is evaluated because maybe it's fine. We finally got to a point, Thomas, where it's a strength to be able to play these multiple roles in a defense, again, thinking of Tyron Matthew, instead of a, a weakness, where does he fit? So much yeah, coming in, in cycles, along with the steady evolution in many areas. And you see uh, a coach that was there this day for this wildcard game as a quality control coach, sometimes pejoratively called a, a retread now getting another chance. Mike McCarthy was, <laughs> a, qual- was a quality control coach there at Arrowhead in this playoff game, he and Schottenheimer both uh, now have second acts with pretty potent offenses. Um, you know, you get, you get the Dallas Cowboys and then Schottenheimer with the Chargers in the early 2000s with Breeze and then Rivers. I thought this was kind of interesting. I was reading like some uh, re- reports when Schottenheimer was hired 
for the Chargers job. And it reminded me of McCarthy going on his, his press tour about being like analytics focused, right. which is which is a you know savvy self marketing and and I bet like it, he will use it to get some edges. But Schottenheimer said uh, in 2004, I'd I'd like to have one opportunity before I'm done coaching to throw it 50 times a game for a whole season. <laughs> but then I'm but then he adds, but then I'm not sure how many games we'd win. But I'm sure that may, they may have helped him get the job. And then also kind of makes me think of the mindset of Jerry Jones and hiring McCarthy. Dean Spanos said when hiring Schottenheimer, I used to hate playing against him. I can't tell you how happy I am that he's on our side. So, yeah, cycles. <laughs> it, it, absolutely. And I think that, it, again, it goes back to that idea that the story is always being written. And the McCarthy thing, Thomas, I, did, I thought it didn't get noted enough that we have already – this stuff is happening a lot faster now, right? The cycles are happening faster that um, now to – gussy yourself up for ownership for people hiring head coaches you want to be associated with analytics you want to be associated with this idea of using numbers to find tendencies but i do think that we can circle all the way back i can't remember who was it said earlier in the cycle that the league has a lot of ways already been doing a lot of these things for a long time and i think we like to fancy ourselves as ahead of the curve or having this insight when there's this much money and this much pressure you know they're already looking at every angle uh but for mike mccarthy to rebrand himself as an analytics coach uh it was striking because i don't think that even two or three years ago that would have been something that a coach trying to rehabilitate his image would do it seemed to have an impact on on getting him a coveted job it seems like they're, you know, it, when a team is on the doorstep, like the Steelers were in the 90s and the, and the Chiefs were as well, and getting you know, two number one seeds in the span of three seasons from 95 to 97, losing each one at home in the divisional round. In 93, they Montana leads a comeback against the Oilers, just like he did against the Steelers. In the AFC title against the Bills, he gets knocked out. They have a, a drop pass that turns into a pick at the goal line right before the half and the game kind of gets away. Um, yeah, yeah, so you have a mix of, like, cruel twists of fate. Sometimes you run into buzzsaws. And then I also thought of um, something. Yeah, you mentioned the coaching carousel episode of yeah, Football Guys, the Audible. The signal teams send out when they hire an assistant coach. The Chiefs, they had Alex Gibbs, 93-94. But then when the Broncos made Alex Gibbs – assistant head coach and offensive line coach in Denver. That sent out a signal that it's going to be a pretty good run game with the zone-based scheme as a feature, just like it was in San Diego a few years earlier. And you think about also just two different planes of existence. What if Schottenheimer had committed to Alex Gibbs' uh, zone-based scheme as more of a feature and how that would have shaped the rest of the 90s? Yeah, and I think that you know we can even look at some of this stuff like Kyle Shanahan, I mean, six months ago, all the talk was he's on the hot seat, right? All the talk is the 49ers have to start doing something. Continuity is important. Uh, you want to give these coaches three, four, five years to install their program and really let it set in. Because that's what you're hearing. Uh, the tone you're hearing a lot is, well, now uh, the Kyle Shanahan offense is really gelling because they've had enough time in it to really absorb it and have cohesiveness that they didn't have before. Uh, and it, again, you know, when you t- think of the Steelers, you think of that continuity almost to a fault staying uh, with coaches and staying with the, the way. So, you know, absolutely. We see 
in some ways, I think, again, this gets back to like alternate realities where we can isolate down these this one decision, this one play, this one moment that ripples through and alters the lives of so many people, including the fans, including the, the, the people that and I think this is what's great again. And don't get me wrong. I don't want to besmirch San Francisco and San Francisco fans. You've had a lot of success. All right. You know, you've you've had a lot. Kansas City fans. Uh, all you see this with Buffalo, I think, where it's almost like the lack of success just uh, increases the passion for the team and the desire to have those hallmark moments to share together. And I, th- what's interesting to me, something that you brought up too, about um, not getting there, right? So this Kansas City team, these players really understand how much because they got there to overtime in the AFC title game last year. How difficult it is in any given year to get to the Super Bowl and nevertheless win the Super Bowl where this San Francisco team, you do have Richard Sherman. I think it's, it's going to be important, but this San Francisco team is made up of a lot of players who don't necessarily have that feeling. And I, I can't remember the last team Thomas that won a Super Bowl. That was an upstart team that in their first year of great success together, took it all the way to the title game and won. Um, so, you know, we'll see how much that plays in, in in the key moments of this game. I think this is going to be an incredible Super Bowl. And uh, I, I think that it, it's, it re- is reminiscent in some ways of the, some of the 80 Super Bowls. A few of them ended up being blowouts where clearly the best team in each side of the bracket made it to the Super Bowl. And in the Super Bowl, I'm going to tie it to a segment I do called the Who Broke the Slate. Get the Super Bowl from a DFS perspective. Whoever breaks the slate in that regard is, will also simultaneously be remembered as someone who came out of nowhere to change the Super Bowl. It was almost, you know, Chris Matthews with that Seahawks right. uh, one against the the Patriots. In this game, like, Keith Cash, kind of a tight end with, like, 20 catches on the year, comes out of nowhere, blocks the punt that puts Montana in the red zone, uh, has seven catches, and puts the Chiefs in field goal range, uh, further in the field goal range toward the end. You, you also have on this slate that weekend – can you guess what QB Cabo would have broken the slate in the Packers game at, at the Lions in 93? Yeah, so I know that this was a, a you know, Lions fans will remember that was a, a Favre to Sharp yep. game. And um, I know in the Raiders game, I was poking around looking at this in preparation. I know that Napoleon McCallum had a big one. I'm not sure who they, I don't think Jeff Hostetler, like from an efficiency standpoint, was tremendous. So yeah, I'll go with Hostetler and, and Favre. I would imagine you probably would have been able to pay down for Hostetler. Yeah. Though Favre, I'm curious about his price at the time too. He was like near the top of the league in attempts, but a 19 to 24 touchdown to interception ratio, which I wonder if that depresses price a little bit. If you're going for a QB tight end stack, if you're going way down, maybe you get Keith Cash, so who's really playing him? But an Elway Shannon Sharp oh. stack would have went completely off as Hostel and the Raiders routed Elway and the Broncos, but Elway did a ton of passing. Yeah, and I and I wanted to point out, too, that the next week, uh, your Giants went to San Francisco and Ricky Waters had five touchdowns. So that's why Raheem Mostert didn't set any records last week. <laughs> This has been another episode of Remember That Game. Please rate, review, subscribe, and check out more episodes.